When I was in the latter years of primary school, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Why are we laughing at me? What's going on down here? Yeah, Steve doesn't need a microphone. Don't freak out. I am coming to the piano. Is this thing on? Give me some volume, Brother Smokey. This doesn't happen very often. When I was in the latter part of primary school, my sister and I started music lessons, uh, keyboard lessons. And um, I dropped out pretty quick. That was kind of how I was when it came to things that didn't hold my attention span. But my younger sister went on to learn music for quite some years, and some of you have met her. Brother Gavin will probably remember she was uh, quite a good piano player. But uh, I, I didn't go on with that. And so this morning, this is what I have. I just play Mary Had a Little Lamb. As a musician, I'm a one-song person. That's all I've got. I can play a couple of bits and pieces of other things that are more hit and miss. And as a preacher this morning, and over the last few weeks, I feel a bit like a one-message preacher. I feel like God is continuing to bring me back to the same theme I'm packaging it different ways so that people don't think I heard that last week. I'm not coming back next week. But I believe, and if you'll take your Bibles, we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There is something that God is wanting to do in our midst. But there is something that we have to let him do before he can do what he wants to do. And we're going to keep coming back to that until the Lord is happy Happy is maybe the wrong word, but until he is satisfied that his will has been done so that we can move forward. When Israel finished their wanderings in the wilderness and they came to the Jordan River at the brink of the promised land, there were some things they had to sort out. There were things that had to happen. They had to go through the crowd and do certain stuff because they were entering into a new season. The manna was not going to be on the ground anymore that angelic food that the Lord miraculously provided was going to come to an end. And it was a new time. But it, it, it brought change, it brought new challenges, it brought things that they hadn't seen before, but it was in the will of the Lord. And I believe that as a church, we are at the edge of that river. But until we get some of these things sorted out, we're going to stand looking at that river until the Lord says, now I'll part the water. First Corinthians chapter 11. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands for a moment in the presence of the Lord. God, we want you to have your way, Lord. We want you to have your way, Lord Jesus. Move in us, God, I pray. God, I pray, open our hearts this morning. Don't let us harden our hearts, Lord. Don't let us shovel it over our shoulder to somebody else. God, speak to me today, Lord, I pray. Speak to me today, Lord God, I pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11 and starting at verse 17. Those of you that are observant will notice we're going to be having communion later, but we'll get to that in time. Verse 17 says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you. The word heresies doesn't only mean false doctrines, it means choosing to separate yourself. That they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Verse 33 says, Wherefore, my beloved, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. With the help of the Lord this morning, I want to preach from this question Will you wait for me? Will you wait for me? Let's pray. Father, oh God. Lord, we feel your presence. Lord, your anointing. That is here, Lord God, and I pray today, Lord, that as we look, look at your word together, Lord, that you would move on us, that you would move in us, that you would move through us, Lord God, that you would break, Lord, yokes today, Lord God, by the anointing of your spirit, Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would release your power in our midst this morning, Lord, be glorified in your house today, Lord, and I ask you, Lord, to allow me to be a conduit, Lord God, to just deliver that which you would have us to hear today. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. The Corinthian church, from what we can see, was an exciting church. It was one of only two churches in the New Testament that had a second epistle written directly to it. The church at Thessalonica or Thessalonica was the other one, but the two epistles to the Thessalonians 
had a grand total of eight chapters combined, whereas to the Corinthians there were some 29 chapters, I believe it is, that were written to them. It would seem that the church was possibly a reasonable size and that there were many signs and wonders that were taking place. And there is something in the human nature, we've touched on this recently on Wednesday nights, about how we love to see the supernatural take place. We love to see miracles and healings, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But although Corinth was an exciting church, it wasn't necessarily a healthy church. Three times at least in the, in the, the epistle that Paul wrote, he addresses the subject of divisions or issues between groups within the church. And at the beginning of the epistle, he warns them, even rebukes them, if you look at the first chapter, about them being divided over different personalities. Some said they were of Paul. Some said they were of Apollos. Some said they were of Peter. And if we're honest this morning, a lot of us might have thought we were of Apollos because he was probably the best preacher in that crowd. But Paul, Paul could have, if he wanted to, said, hey, I started this church. You read Acts, I think it's the 18th chapter, you'll see he spent at least 18 months in Corinth teaching and discipling and, and raising up a group of believers. He could have said, I taught you people the word of God. He could have said, I'm your pastor. You should be listening to me. But he didn't do that because Paul knew, number one, that it wasn't his church or his kingdom. But also he knew that the problem was deeper than just who somebody's favorite preacher was and who they liked to listen to on Sunday and whose initials they liked to see on the preaching roster. And here in chapter 11, Paul is having to correct the abuse of the Lord's table, the manner in which it was taking place, the attitude, the mindset, everything about the way they were doing it was completely wrong. In fact, Paul said that some of them were turning it into like a feast or a banquet and showing up with lavish meals and huge amounts of food and others were so poor that they didn't have any food to bring. And he said not only that, but people were doing whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. Some were coming in and having a great big meal and they, they were packing up their leftovers before the other poor folk who couldn't bring anything were even coming through the doors of the church, if I can use that expression. He was, he was changed, everything was wrong and people were coming and going with no thought being given whatsoever for the others in their church. Paul, to put it mildly, was unhappy. He was unhappy. And in verse 18, he said that he heard that there were divisions among them, things that were separating brethren. And again, like the problems in the first chapter, there was a visible problem on the surface, the abuse of the Lord's Supper. But there was more that was happening underneath than just what was going on with the table of the Lord. The Greek word that is translated here as divisions is also translated in the New Testament as rent or rend, which is an old-fashioned way of saying something is ripped or it is torn. It's been ripped in pieces or apart. And in the scripture, particularly through the Old Testament, you will find that when people rent their clothes, when they tore their garments, it was a demonstration, a violent demonstration of grief, of remorse, 
or of anger in some occasions. And often it was symbolic of their emotional response to a situation that they could not fix. Something, if somebody passed away or something tragic happened, people that were very expressive in their grief and their anger and their frustration, they would take their coats or their, their cloaks, the garments they used to wear, and they would rip them as if to say, this can't be fixed. And the grief that they felt, if you read in Genesis, when you read the story of Jacob, of how when his sons, through deceit, brought him the bloodied coat of Joseph and told him a lie and made up a story, and they, they, they didn't actually say it, but they allowed their father to believe that his favorite son had been killed by a wild animal. The Bible says that Jacob took his garments and he tore them. He rent his garments because in his mind, Joseph was gone. And he could not fix that problem. He could not turn. We know the end of the story that it was all a lie and that he was restored to his son. But at that point of his grief, he thought he, he was heartbroken and unable to rectify that situation. And so as part of that hopelessness, he took his garments and he tore them. Amen. And if you read on a little further, I think it's in First or Second Samuel, when the Lord pronounces judgment against Saul because he's been disobedient, and Samuel comes for the last time to Saul and says, because of what you've done, the Lord's not happy. And the Bible says that as Samuel turned to leave, that Saul reached out and grabbed his garment and in his desperation, or maybe Samuel was moving quickly because it was emotional for Samuel as well, that his garment was torn. And so Samuel turned back to Saul and said, as you've torn this garment, the kingdom has been torn from you and given to another. We know that was speaking about David who would become the king of Israel. Amen. So there's a lot of symbolism in the rending or the tearing of garments. And the prophet Isaiah told us very candidly in the Old Testament, he said that we are all as an unclean thing talking about the sin of mankind and that all our unrighteousness is as filthy rags. Rags speak of not just things that are worn out, but there's, there's usually rags are torn. They're not nice, neatly put together garments. He said, that's what our righteousness is like. It's filthy rags. We're unclean. We're filthy. He said, we fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. But the same prophet, the same prophet speaking about the hope that God would give us said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And the, the vivid picture that is painted here is that when you and I come to the Jesus for the first time, we are in filthy rags. Our own righteousness, our own feelings of self-worth and how important or special we might feel we are in the presence of God because we are sinners, they are filthy rags. But at His feet, in an obedience to His Word and through the grace and mercy of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, He will take those filthy rags. 
And the Bible says that He will cover us with garments of righteousness. That He gives us, He washes us, and He clothes us afresh. Not because we deserved it. Not because we had anything that we could offer in exchange. But because He so loved us. That while we were yet sinners, while I chose my rags, He said, I have a garment, if you wish... If you will come to me, if you will allow me to heal your disease, to cleanse your sin, to mend your brokenness, I can take your filth and I can clothe you in righteousness that we do not deserve today. Hallelujah. I'm thankful for that today. Amen. I'm thankful that he's clothed me in his righteousness. Amen. It was a little over 30 years ago that I remember that I was filled with the Holy Ghost, sitting on the front row on a funny blue-colored plastic chair in an old building that was falling down, that God put His Spirit into the heart of an 11-year-old boy that didn't really comprehend what was happening. And He took my rags, and He took my filth, and He took my shame, and He clothed me in His righteousness. That's why the Bible tells us in Luke 15, that when the prodigal son finally woke up and came home, and it doesn't tell us what he was wearing when he came home, but he lived with pigs. He was pretty grotty. It had been a long time since he had a wash, and I'm pretty sure his clothes were not in the best of condition. But when he came back to the father's house and presented himself as a servant to his father, one of the first things his father said was, bring forth the best robe. Don't bring me my old nightgown or my old dressing gown because he's dirty. He said, bring me the best robe. And he washed and restored his son in a moment's time to relationship. That's what God can do. That's what God can do with us if we will allow him to. Hallelujah, hallelujah. In Matthew 22, there is a parable of a king who's preparing a a marriage for his son and the people that he invites for one reason or another don't come. And finally, he sends out the invitation into the highways and the byways. And we know that the parable is speaking of how Israel turned their back on their Messiah and the gospel came to you and I as Gentiles. But what it says is that toward the end, when everything was starting to happen, and the party was underway, that the king came in to see the guests. And there was a man there at the wedding reception, at the wedding feast, who did not have on a wedding garment. And when he was questioned, why are you not wearing a wedding garment? He did not have a response. And the scripture says that he was commanded to be bound and to be taken and to be cast out into darkness. And if you don't understand the culture, you can say, well, that's a bit harsh. But the culture was that the king provided garments for every guest at the feast. It wasn't, well, maybe he couldn't afford it. Maybe his tux was at the dry cleaners. No, the garment was provided by the king. For everybody who was invited, they were given a garment to celebrate at the feast. And so there was no excuse for what he'd done. Not only that. But when the garments were given to the guests at the wedding, everybody at the wedding looked the same. It didn't matter if you were rich. It didn't matter if you were poor. It didn't matter if you were family or you were your your child's school teacher. However you were invited, we were all equal at the feast of the king's son. That's one of the great things about Calvary is it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. 
whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your education is, whatever your history, your heritage, your background. When you come to Calvary, when you allow Him to take your rags, we all wear the same robe. Nobody's wearing designer and nobody's wearing hand-me-downs. They're all His righteousness. It all comes from Him. He clothes us with His righteousness. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. And we need to remind ourselves again and again and again that as Paul said, such were some of you. Such were some of you. When he lists all those vile sins, he said, that's who we were. That's who we were. He said, but we're washed. We're justified. We're sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And if it doesn't stir gratitude in your heart today, you've forgotten where you came from. If you can't feel thankful for what he did for you, you need to remember what he brought you out of. Because just like me, you're no different. You had rags as well. You had filth upon your soul. And he said, here, I'll clothe you with something fresh and something righteous. And I wish I could tell you this morning, that that 11-year-old boy that was filled with the Holy Ghost has done his best all these years to keep that garment clean, but I haven't. I walked away from God for seasons, and even when I've been trying to walk with God, there are times I've fallen over, stained the knees of that thing, I've torn the elbows, got upset over things that shouldn't have got upset about, maybe even rent my garment a little bit in my own humanity and carnality. More times, if I'm honest, than I can remember. Sometimes I've dirtied my hands with sin and tried to wipe them clean on that robe and only succeeded in making it worse than it was to begin with. It wasn't always my fault. Sometimes when I fell over, I was pushed. We've all been pushed. We've all been pushed. Sometimes somebody else might have upset me and I tore my robe in my own self-righteousness. That's what it is, really. When we get offended at somebody else and we get indignant, it's self-righteousness. It's all about why we should be treated better. How can we possibly think that if they treated him as they did, that we deserve to be treated better? We so easily get offended and tear our garment and our self-righteousness, self-exaltation. And my Bible says that no flesh should glory in his presence. And like a little child, you know, when you ever, when you were a kid growing up, you had some new clothes and maybe you went to a function and your parents said, keep that clean. You know, if you're like most little boys at one time or another, you had to wear a pair of dress pants that were too short because you'd had a growth spurt and they're halfway up your shins. And you go to that wedding or whatever it is and you try to behave, but then the other kids are running around, you know. Or there's a football or, or a basketball or a soccer ball. And, before long, your resolve has lasted about that long and you're running around with the other kids and in your enthusiasm, you fall over and those clothes that you were threatened to keep clean have been torn. There's a grass stain up the knee of those nice pants that your mum just bought for you. And we have to come back to the Lord just like a little kid that's torn their pants or their dress and come back to the Lord and say, I think I've messed up. I think I've, I've, I've broken this. You know, and you, our parents understandably got upset because we didn't understand the cost that was involved. But time after time, time after time, 
after time after time. I've come back to him with grass stains on my robe, with a rip in the front, stains that I've tried to wash off myself again and again and again. And he has offered me a new robe again and again. You know, he doesn't repair, he replaces. He renews, he heals and he makes whole and he restores. You see, we make the mistake. This is one of the things I want you to remember this morning. We make the mistake of believing that we can repair our own garments. That when he gives us that robe of righteousness and we damage it in one way or another, whether we feel justified or not, we make the mistake of thinking, I can fix this. I can mend this garment and nobody will know the difference. We take a piece of cloth that we choose and we sew it into that torn section. I'm not somebody that I can sew a button on, but beyond that I'm not real good. But we try to stitch in that new piece, believing and even convincing ourselves that it looks as good as new. And we feel good about the job that we've done. But you know, when it doesn't come from Him, the cloth that you choose comes from flesh. You might choose to take a piece of cloth that says, well, I'm going to suppress this hurt and push it down. And if nobody sees it and I stitch it back together, nobody will know the difference. Or you might think, well, because of that person and they've caused me to rend my garments so many times, I'll just try to avoid them. I'll smile, I'll shake their hand, but I'll do my best not to interact because that way they won't be able to make me rip my garment again and everything will look fine to everybody passing by. You know, the Lord said in Matthew chapter 9, and this is a little out of context, but the principle still applies. He said, no man putting a piece of new cloth on an old garment, because that which is put in, or when you try to fix it yourself, he said, it will fill up, it taketh from the garment. And the rent, the tear is actually made worse. Because the new cloth and the old cloth are not compatible. They have different strengths and so you might do your best to stitch that up. But when it faces the tension again, the Lord said not only does the tear happen, but it's worse than the last time. That's what happens when you and I try to mend our own robes. We feel like we've got this covered. We feel like it looks okay. Other people seem to think I look okay. But then something happens because it's unresolved and you very quickly find yourself with your hands on your own lapels again and you tear that thing. And it doesn't only open the original wound, it makes it deeper than it was the first time. That's what he said. It makes the rend worse than it was before. Where are we going with this this morning? Paul told the Corinthians that the Lord's table was not about feasting. It wasn't really even supposed to be a meal. It was a memorial. It was a sober time. It was a holy thing. It was something that was precious. And Paul, after he says, I, you know, I hear that there are these divisions. I hear that there's these heresies. And then he said, I'm ready to believe them. After that, he reminds them 
of what the Lord had said at the Last Supper of how this is my body and this is my blood. And he began to teach them about the dangers of participating in the communion table the wrong way. And we use this as our instructional text when we take communion, and so we should. But there is more in this than just the right way to take communion. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11 with me if you would. First Corinthians 11 and 27. He said, after he, he reminds them what the Lord actually said at the Last Supper, he said, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, drink this cup, Lord, unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. But for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Very strong language not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. To not discern the Lord's body, as it tells us in verse 29, I think it is, is to fail to recognize the significance of what they're doing when they have communion. To fail to recognize that it's a memorial about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's, the, it's a memorial of the only thing that gives us hope in this world. But as a part of that, it also includes that we recognize the body of Christ that we are a part of. His body on the cross... His body is the church. We need to be able to discern both because when we understand how the two are connected, it changes the way we view Calvary. And that's why he said we need to examine ourselves. We need to judge ourselves. And if we need to be chastened of the Lord, we need to allow him to renew our garments, to give us a fresh robe. And if we're stained or if it's torn, we have to remember why he died and what it was all about and allow him to clothe us afresh. Paul told them to tarry or to wait for one another. He wanted them together as a body when it happened. He didn't want people coming and going. He wanted the church to be together. But again, there's a deeper principle here than just all being at church on time for communion. Paul wasn't all about... You read his personality, he probably was about punctuality. But it wasn't just about if communion's at 10.30, be there at 10.30. There's something more powerful here than that. Because you see, if I have torn my garment, if I've stained the robe that he's given me, if I've tried to wipe my own hands on his righteousness, or I've caused you to tear your garment, that's not necessarily something that you can fix in a second of time. You can't just wave a magic wand and say, there you go, everything's fine, everything's rosy, it's great. It may take a little time for me to sort that out. And if you think, well, you should go to the Lord and make it right straight away, yes, I should, but so should you. But we all know that not everything is sorted out in an instant. The world we live in is instantaneous. 
the things we're dealing with are eternal. And sometimes, because we're flesh, not everything happens before lunch on the day. That's why the Lord said in the Psalms, it says, the psalmist said that as a father pitieth his children. That's how the Lord views us. And it says he knows our frame. In other words, he knows what we're made of. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're flawed. He knows that we're corrupt. And he doesn't come down on us straight away, but he wants us to be restored. He wants to draw us to him. But just as Jesus has renewed my garment time after time after time, and sometimes for the same thing again and again and again, waiting for me again and again and again. The question that God wants us to ask ourselves this morning is will you also wait for me? Will we wait for one another? Will we tarry one for another? It's not just about being on time for communion. If I need some time, will you wait for me? If you need some time, will I wait for you? That's the question the Lord wants us to ask this morning. If we haven't got it all together, can we find it in our hearts to wait one for another? Some of us need to remember what he did for us before we are so quick to tear our garments because of our brother or sister. Some of us need to bring our garments to the Lord that we've tried to patch up, that we've tried to sew ourselves before they get worse. And if your brother or sister, if my brother or sister have torn their garments and they seem to be taking what I consider to be too long to sort it out, will I wait for them? Will they wait for me? Bless the Lord. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and 5, in the middle of the verse, it talks about being clothed with humility. Being clothed with humility. Being in another place, it talks about if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Galatians 6 and 1, I think it is, where it says, if a brother is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. You know what that means? That means we've got to wait for each other sometimes. We can't always be at full speed. None of us are at our best every day. If we're honest, most of us are not at our best very often. If we're honest. And we need to tarry one for another. Oh, but they should know better. Yes, they should. So should you. They've done it before. Yes, they have. So have you. I'm going to stitch this thing up and then I'm going to shake their hand when I come through that door and that's all I'm going to do. It's going to tear again. It's going to rip again. And it's going to rip worse. And even when he gives you a new garment, you might rip that one a couple of times as well. But he wants to replace, not to mend. The Lord doesn't do patch-ups. There's a reason why in Ephesians chapter 5 he says that he wants to present his bride, the church, to himself without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. And I can add to that without patchwork. He's not doing a patch-up. He's doing a renewal and a restoration and a replacement. That's why when I come to him and I say, God, I've ripped this thing again somehow. 
I'm not even sure how I did it. I'm not even sure how I caused my brother to rip theirs, but somehow I've done it. When he replaces that garment, it's like the old one never existed. He doesn't have, when you go to him, he doesn't have a pile of torn grass-stained garments behind him saying, another one? Really? How many times have we done this? He doesn't say that. They're gone. And when I come to him, he has one garment waiting for me. It's the new one that I need. But too often, when we come to each other, we've got all those dirty garments in the cupboard behind us. And we're saying, see how many times you've done this? See how many times you've made me tear my garment? Will we wait for each other? I need you to wait for me just because I'm the pastor. I get my garments dirty all the time. And I need somebody to wait for me. And I need to wait for somebody. You know, nothing is in the scripture without a reason. John 19, the crucifixion, tells us that the soldiers that were at the cross, they took Jesus' garments and they made them into four parts. Everybody got a piece. Don't exactly know how all that worked. But it says they took his coat. There's a reason the Bible says that his coat was made without a seam, woven from top throughout. No mending, no joins, one single piece. That's how he wants to clothe his church. One single piece. No mending, no tears, no joins, no bits where we've wanted to patch it up. You know what that means? That means sometimes I have to wait for you. And sometimes you have to wait for me. When Jacob, when Jacob was reunited with Esau, he was terrified of his older brother's revenge, but time had passed sufficiently and Esau had got over it and they, they turned, they, they hug each other's necks and they make preparations to go to see their father. And Esau, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, you know, let's go, let's be there, get there in a hurry. And Jacob says, you go. He says, I can't drive the flock too hard. Because there's little ones, there's lambs, there's older sheep. He said, if I drive the flock too hard, they will die. Jacob's goal was that everybody went the journey. The weak, the young, the elderly, those that maybe weren't too sharp, those that didn't walk too good. That didn't, but he said, I want to bring them all. And that's what the Lord wants. The Lord wants us all to finish the journey. But that means that sometimes we can't go as fast as we'd like because we have to wait for one another. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Let's stand together this morning. Brother Chichi and Brother Moses, if you'd like to bring that table over here and get ready to help me out. That garment that Jesus had that didn't have a seam, you study that out, you'll see there's a connection there between the garments of the high priest in the Old Testament. There were similar garments they would wear without seams. Because of Jesus, he fulfilled so many of those types and shadows in the New Testament. But the psalmist said this. I think it was David in the 133rd Psalm. He said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And everybody says amen. We get that. 
But then he said, it is like the precious ointment upon the head. Who's our head? He's the head. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and then it went down to the skirts of his garments. Uninterrupted flow. No tears, no patchwork, no pieces missing, but an uninterrupted garment. That's what I want. I want there to be an anointing and a unity in our midst that is not interrupted from the top to the bottom. But it's up to you and I. Will we wait for one another? Are we going to keep tearing our own garments and our own stinking self-righteousness and justify ourselves time and time again? Because what God wants to do in our midst will not happen until we get over some junk get some torn, stained, patchwork robes and lay them at the foot of the cross and say, God, clothe me afresh. Help me to wait for my brother. Amos chapter 3, I think it is, and verse 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? That doesn't only mean about where we're going. That means about the speed that we're walking at. If I choose to walk with Brother Chi-Chi somewhere, my legs are a little longer than his. Either I'm going slower or he's speeding up. But if we're going together, it's got to be at a speed that both of us can maintain. And that means that if I'm wounded, if I've torn my garments and I'm dragging my wagon a little bit and you've got to wait for me, please wait for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands for a moment and worship the Lord. Hallelujah. I mean absolutely no irreverence, nor do I mean to undervalue Calvary. But when you really stop and consider this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, it's as much about the church as it is about the cross. It's teaching about remembering what the communion table is for, but the instruction that is given is not given to remind them that Jesus died. It's given to remind them that he died for them. And that their approach to him cannot be separated from their approach one to another. So that means I have to be willing to wait. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning in this place.